1: Guccifer 2.0 seems not to have actually hacked the Clinton Foundation, how information operations can work against an election, the arrested NSA contractor's alleged motives remain unclear, how the Mirai botnet got its exploitable vulnerabilities, the U.S. Surgeon General discloses a breach, and if you have a hard time listening to all of this, you may be suffering from security fatigue. Don't believe us. Take it from NIST. I'm Dave Bittner in Baltimore with your CyberWire Summary and Week in Review for Friday, October 7th, 2016. Guccifer 2.0's claim to have hacked the Clinton Foundation now appears spurious to most observers, in fact, quite exploded. Researcher Scott Turbin, better known by his Dr. Cryptia handle, looked at the file's metadata and concluded, as he told CSO, that Guccifer 2.0's docs, in fact, came from the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee. Ars Technica and The Hill independently reached the same conclusion on the basis of the same evidence. This is no new hack. The DCCC and the Democratic National Committee are known to have been compromised some time ago. The timeline for the DNC hack is clear. Cozy Bear penetrated the DNC's network in the summer of 2015 and was joined by the noisier Fancy Bear in April of this year. Cozy and Fancy Bear are generally believed to be groups belonging to Russian intelligence services, largely on the strength of research by cybersecurity firms CrowdStrike, Fidelis, and FireEye. Guccifer 2.0, who claims to be a non-Russian hacktivist, is widely regarded as a sock puppet for Russian intelligence. But whatever paw may be inside this particular sock puppet, observers note that doxing need not be authentic to be an effective tool of information warfare. We heard New America's Peter Singer speak about information operations, specifically Russian information operations, this week at the Association of the United States Army's annual meeting. Russia invented information warfare, Singer said. Quote, they don't conceive of it as we do in narrowly military terms, end quote. The goal of Russian information operations is not to make people love Russia, but rather to disrupt and create distrust. This may feel new to us, but it goes back at least as far as Stalin's day. Thus, U.S. elections need not be disrupted through hacked voting machines. Cultivation of mistrust and consequent questioning of their legitimacy may be enough to achieve an adversary's goal. The case of the former NSA contractor arrested for improper possession of classified material and government property is being characterized by observers as not an obvious case of either a whistleblower or a spy. Why he took the material he's alleged to have taken remains obscure, but in this case, intent may wind up having little relevance. It appears increasingly unlikely to most that the contractor arrested had any connection with the shadow broker's leaks. Observers also think it unlikely that the arrest will have any noticeable effect on how the U.S. intelligence community uses contractors. Both contract and government personnel are cleared by the same authorities. Both contractors and agencies face similar insider threats. Booz Allen Hamilton has made it clear that they reached out to the FBI as soon as they learned that one of their employees had been arrested and that from the outset they've fully cooperated with the FBI in its investigation. And as noted in yesterday's CyberWire, Booz Allen also immediately terminated the employee in question. Looking back at the week just ending, security researchers at Flashpoint have been following what they call the downstream trail of vulnerabilities exploited by the Mirai botnet, responsible for the large distributed denial-of-service attack against Krebs on security. They've identified the primary supplier of products whose default credentials are Root and XC3511. It's Xiongmai Technologies, which sells DVR, NVR, and IP camera boards and software to manufacturers of such devices. Flashpoint thinks more than half a million devices are susceptible to exploitation of this vulnerability. On Monday, the U.S. Surgeon General warned his organization's employees that their personal data may have been accessed in a breach achieved by unspecified hackers. This is the most recent in a series of breaches coming from targeted attacks on government agencies. The CyberWire heard from Michael Patterson, CEO of Plixr who noted that when medical professionals like those who work for the Surgeon General have their personal information compromised, there's a risk that the data could be subsequently used for prescription or insurance fraud. And finally, do you find yourself run down, feeling tired when confronted with security warnings? Do exhortations to change this, watch out for that, do this first, even dare one say, stop, think, connect, leave you jaded? Well, apparently you're not alone. A study released this week by the U.S. National Institute of Standards and Technology, NIST, diagnosed security fatigue in the general population of computer users. The syndrome is defined as weariness or reluctance to deal with computer security. And by all accounts, it's pretty widespread. The NIST investigators responsible for the study are planning a follow-up inquiry to look for ways in which security might be made less fatiguing. A security industry executive offered us an introspective look at how the cyber sector might be contributing to the malaise. Ilya Kolachenko, CEO of web security firm Tech Bridge, told the CyberWire that there are just too many security products being rolled out to capitalize on the fear we find so tiring. Kolachenko said, quote, "Today too many security vendors offer similar solutions without genuine technological differentiators." End quote. This adds to the troubles of those who are most likely to be exhausted by security, yet whose exhaustion can have some of the worst consequences, enterprise security teams. Kolachenko added, quote, In addition to their daily fight with cybercrime and human negligence, they've now also got to perform complicated due diligence on the cybersecurity vendors among whose products they must select, end quote. So spare a thought for the hardworking CISOs out there, and spare them as much FUD as you decently can. And if you find the cyberwires contributing to your security fatigue, we're sorry. Please take a break. Take a stroll. And remember, we all still live in physical space. And now a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. That's vanta.com/slash cyber. And I'm pleased to be joined once again by Dr. Charles Clancy. He's the director of the Hume Center for National Security and Technology at Virginia Tech. Dr. Clancy, of course, we have an election coming up here in the United States, and, um, and the candidates have started talking about cyber policy. Uh, what's your take on uh, the kinds of things they've been saying?
2: Uh, indeed, uh, there have been a, a number of, of policy positions put forward, particularly by the Clinton campaign, talking about uh, what uh, sort of future cyber policy might look like uh, here within the United States if if they're successful in winning the White House. And I think one of the areas that's really interesting uh, in terms of of attention is this notion of destructive cyber attacks. Um, so these are attacks where uh, they either uh, uh, exploit an information system and use it to transcend into a physical environment in order to cause a physical impact. Uh, you can think a Stuxnet-style attack. Or uh, a scenario where they are uh, exploiting a system and then they are deleting data in a destructive way. And uh, the campaigns have come out essentially saying that uh, if, you are having a destructive impact in, as some sort of cyber attack uh... this is beyond the sort of traditional boundaries of cyber espionage and now we're kind of starting to tread into the the waters of cyber warfare and here, if you look at, at, at the United States' doctrine in cyber warfare, uh, basically, the United States can engage in a destructive attack under sort of two scenarios. One is, uh, if we're at war with someone, and this falls under uh, Title 10 of the uh, general legal framework that the U.S. military operates under, um, if we're in a declared state of war with someone, we can do destructive cyber attacks. Um, uh, and if we seek to have a, a destructive cyber attack against a non wartime target, then this is possible uh, as a covert action through the uh, espionage laws of, of uh, Title 50. Um, but the, the line between those gets particularly blurred, uh, particularly when you have uh, longstanding uh, uh, engagements such as the global war on terrorism. And I think it's important that policymakers really make sure that they understand the difference, because uh, particularly as tensions escalate with Russia and China, um, some sort of destructive cyber attack uh, that involves them uh, could actually lead to uh, the declared state of war, which is a a frightening outcome, I think, for all of us.
1: And and is it correct that uh, that the current administration certainly has been been reticent to draw a line in the sand to, to define where that line might be?
2: Uh, indeed, and I think many people are concerned about drawing the line because of many of the U.S.'s activities abroad in cyberspace, and a concern that uh, drawing such a line might indicate that some of our activity was over that line. Uh, so uh, it, it will be interesting to see, particularly as the new administration comes in uh, in the in the fall. I'm uh, sorry, in the winter, uh, to see how policy shifts if it does at all.
1: All right, Dr. Clancy, thanks for joining us. My guest today is Joyce Brocaglia. She's the CEO of Alta Associates, an executive search firm specializing in cyber professionals, and she's founder of the Executive Women's Forum, a member organization that says its core mission is to attract, develop, and sustain women in the information security, IT risk management, and privacy industries through education, leadership development, and the creation of trusted relationships. I began our conversation by asking her to describe the origins of the Executive Women's Forum
0: growing up in information security and being kind of a Jersey girl, so spending a lot of my time in Wall Street and being the only woman in the room, I started to be aware that there were more and more women holding positions of influence um, inside corporations and as entrepreneurs of uh, security-related startups. And I really recognized that there was no place for these ladies to gather or share ideas. And uh, oddly enough, having dreams with the same gentleman, Steve Katz, and uh, he said, you know, there's not a lot of women Insecurity, and I said, "No, really, there is." And literally started writing women's names down on a drink napkin. And opened it, opened it up again, and said, "Hey, what would you think if I put a cocktail party together for these remarkable women I knew?" And uh, what started in my mind as a cocktail party ended up uh, nine months later uh as a, a conference for 125 women in Sanibel Island Florida so i kind of tease steve to this day and say you know i had drinks with you on a cold winter's night and 9 months later the ewf was born so uh fast forward 14 years from there um, today the executive women's forum is the largest member organization uh that serves emerging leaders as well as the most prominent and influential uh women in our field and our our real true mission uh, that I'm incredibly passionate about is uh, that we are continuing to engage, develop, and advance women leaders in information security, IT risk management, privacy, and the related industries.
1: Looking at the industry, and, and certainly I think what is generally considered to be an underrepresentation by women in cybersecurity, what is your take on that situation?
0: Well, I think that there's a lot of questions asked about the number of women in security. As a matter of fact, um, the Executive Women's Forum this year has partnered with ISC Squared, um, each every two years, they they produce something called the Global uh, Workforce Study, and uh, this year we uh, worked very closely with ISC Squared in developing and refining their survey um, to include questions very specific to women and minorities. The last survey that came out in 2015 had showed that the number of women in information security dropped from. in 2013 to 10% in 2015, and the EWF has made a huge commitment to um, really double the number of women in the field over the next 10 years, so we are um, doing everything possible. You know, I get questioned all the time about how come there's not a lot of women in security, and, you know, that's that's a problem that stems all the way back into grammar school and and you know how young women are, are focused away from technology it's not a problem just in security it's a problem in stem um, but what i focus on is kind of the the dirty little secret part which is not just the problem of why isn't there enough women in security it's that why are so many women that are in security opting out and i think that you know companies need to really take a look at um what are they doing to better develop and retain those women that are on boards uh, of, of security organizations already, um, my solution to that is uh, a providing them better leadership development opportunities earlier on in their careers that's one of the reasons why we developed the leadership journey was because so many women said that you know they were given uh, opportunities to do you know seminars, or you know Cheryl Sandberg came, and everybody leaned in um, but there was no real practical application of what they had learned and uh you know, a lot of times companies reserve uh, executive coaching opportunities and true leadership development for very senior-level women. Well, what happens if you only give it to women at the top, then you're losing a lot of women in the middle that, for whatever reasons, kind of throw their hands up and decide to opt out. Um, one of the things we do with that program, and whether it's through a leadership development program or just as a part of a, of a corporate structure, is the concept of sponsorship and that's something that both men and women you know certainly should be doing for uh high potential and high performing women in their organizations is become a sponsor um you know and what i would say to men uh, is uh, to sponsor these women in the same way that they would sponsor their male counterparts. A lot of times when women are given sponsorships uh, by men, uh, they are often, you know, schooled in uh, areas of, of presentation skills or confidence or areas like that, but often are not schooled in terms of how to really uh, talk in business terms or present to the board or frame things in a way um, that will get the type of attention that they need. Um, so, I think the concept of sponsoring high potential women, and, and when I say sponsoring instead of mentoring, I use the word sponsoring because that means they have some skin in the game. They actually um, are using their political capital within a corporation to help that woman. Um, That might mean giving her stretch assignments or introducing her to other opportunities or or putting her on a high track for promotion or rotations. Um, So so I think, you know, those are the kinds of things uh, that companies could think about and, and start making a difference. Um, You know, if not us, then who? I think it is the responsibility of people that are currently in the field of information security, IT risk, cybersecurity, to lift as they rise. I mean, that's what we call our mentorship program, lift. And uh, I think that everyone should take that responsibility very seriously. Um, And, uh, you know, the only way that we're going to really create the next generation of leaders um, is if we take action ourselves. And if not us, then who?
1: That's Joyce Brocaglia from Alta Associates and the Executive Women's Forum. They've got their big national conference coming up later this month in Scottsdale, Arizona, and there's more information about that on their website. And that's the Cyberwire. We are proudly produced in Maryland by our talented team of editors and producers. I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening.
0: Hi, everybody. It's Maria Varmazas here, your host over at t Space Daily, and sometimes a guest on Hacking Humans, too.